0: Hi ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. I'm sound fact though. Yeah,
1: who the hell knows what Huck sounds like?
0: Well, it sounds like
2: Philip Glass.
1: Hey, you know what? If you want to know more about Philip Glass and minimalism, you really should listen to our last episode if you haven't heard it yet. So check that out and then hit us back.
2: Yeah, listen to that one first. Then this episode, we're going to dive into his third opera in what is called the Portrait Trilogy. And it is called Akhenaten. And this opera, I find it deeply fascinating because of the subject matter. And the more I started researching it and digging into it, the more fascinating I found the whole creative genesis of the opera to be. So there's lots to talk about. Uh, So we're going to dive in and hear a lot of the opera and talk about how this opera came into being. Um, Are there any questions before we do do that? I do have
1: a question. Yeah. I hate to derail things so quickly, but uh, is it important that we know anything about the second opera of the trilogy?
2: No. It's not like necessary for understanding this. Satyagraha is a beautiful opera. Um, I think the most important thing to know about it is that a major point of influence that is explored in the opera is um, the influence of Gandhi and the Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I just had a moment where you looked at me like, Am I
0: wrong? No, 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 no. no I was listening. <laughs> I was in my head. How on. dare you? Satyagraha uh-huh. is about Gandhi. It is about Gandhi. We've only seen the one production of it, and it's about Gandhi and puppets.
2: <laughs> right. There are a lot of puppets in the current Met production of it. But I think it's important to understand or to know that the trilogy kind of f- formed around the idea that each of the three operas kind of explores the life and personage of a very important historical figure Mm -hmm. that somehow changed the world in their life or changed like the course of history so the first opera being about Einstein and what he contributed to the world the second opera being focused around Gandhi and then this third opera being focused around uh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh who actually lived uh, whose name was Akhenaten or originally Amenhotep the 4th a pretty minor pharaoh in the history of Egypt sort oh, of minor dang. although he's Throwing pretty it down. i said it he's minor <laughs> in terms of like the time length that he reigned but he's actually considered fairly disruptive in the historical timeline <clears throat> because of how radical he was
0: oh yeah heads up Akhenaten follows that oh so special pattern of um, characters dying if the opera is named after them oh yeah yeah he didn't cool, live. Cool, sweet. He didn't. He wasn't a pharaoh for that long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not a surprise. <laughs>
0: no, nah, not 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 that long. But I do think, but yeah, he did attempt to do a fuck
2: ton. He did in in that <laughs> short amount of time. Yeah, so he did. We should talk about the historical figure because it's hugely important in how the opera was constructed. Uh-huh. So, uh, the actual pharaoh Akhenaten, whose name is Akhenaten Amenhotep the Fourth, he actually was born Amenhotep the Fourth kind of named after his father, who was Amenhotep III. And shortly after he became pharaoh, he changed his name to Akhenaten. And the reason he did this was because shortly after he became pharaoh, I think within or around the fifth year that he was reigning over Egypt, he decided that... He was going to change the entire religious practice of the nation, and yep, on a whim.
1: Dang. <laughs> right.
2: Supposedly, like Henry the Eighth. Well, I, it know, is, I was going to say, is,
1: who does that sound like?
3: Well,
2: right. kind of. It is debated whether it was out of deep conviction or whether it was kind of like a a way of like establishing his authority even more deeply. But generally speaking, yes, who could say? But he is credited with introducing the idea of a monotheistic. Religion and when did he Uh. when did he live? He lived circa. We think he was born somewhere around 1380 BC Mm -hmm. and died somewhere around 1335 BC. Okay,
1: it's amazing when you think of the whole history of Egypt and it's actually thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So something like 1300 BC is actually kind of like later on in the Egyptian empire timeline, right?
2: Uh, yeah, because you're counting down towards zero, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Towards. So, <laughs> I, well, I guess yeah. it's like they, yeah. the, end ga- the end game. I mean, I learned it as like before Christ and after death, but I think it's before the common era is right. the life of Christ is kind of like the crux point mm-hmm. in history, right? Yeah. Um, any hoodle yes so so actually this ties in with Akhenaten's idea (laughs) right monotheistic religions because even though basically in like this 12 year period or so that he reigned it's like between 12 and 15 years that he had control of the throne he completely defunded all the tiny temples for all these different gods and he established a totally new city Before this time, the heart of the Egyptian Empire was in Thebes, and there was this huge Mm -hmm. um, temple complex where there were just hundreds of temples to all these different gods. And the way that religion was carried out was that the, the very important people, like the royalty and the very aristocratic level people, could go to this temple complex in Karnak in Thebes, which they could worship in these very super secret, very um, elite ceremonies inside the temples. But then your average person in Egypt, like your average stonemason, would have a bunch of little idols that they would kind of have their own little altars set up to. And there were different Mm. smaller temples around that they could go worship. But what Akhenaten did was he basically defunded all of those pluralistic gods, and he did not give any funding to any of the temples. He completely dismantled the temple of uh, Amun, which was like kind of the most powerful seat of this pluralistic approach to religion. And he said, now all of Egypt is ruled by Aten, which is sort of the sun god, but it's not the actual sun that they were worshiping. But the sun was like a representation of this one true all powerful god. And he said that I am the son of Aten so that's why he changed his name to like servant or son Mm. of Aten Mm. and so not only is he credited with introducing the idea of a monotheistic religion but also introducing the idea of an abstract god so a god that did not literally embody itself in stone or wood or in some kind of natural element.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah, and so the other kind of things that he was known for historically is that Akhenaten's wife was the extremely famous Nefertiti.
1: Dang!
2: Yes, um, Nefertiti was was and is known as one of the most beautiful women to ever live in ancient times there is this really famous bust of her that survived almost completely intact that shows you her a depiction of her Mm -hmm. she was his chief wife or like head wife first wife um and he actually had several wives as was common at this time and so here's the kind of like gross salacious part of this episode Um,
1: oh no
3: so
2: There was a bunch of speculation. Akhenaten and all of his wives and children were, we now know, were more or less all of them were buried in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. But for a long time, people didn't know which mummy essentially was which person. And it wasn't really until DNA testing where they could sort of reconstruct the lineage of all of these pharaohs of the Amarna dynasty or of this time period. And so-
1: They did- DNA testing on all the mummies.
2: Yeah, yeah, and like pretty recently, I went down a oh. deep rabbit hole yesterday <laughs> about this. Dang. So, the most famous pharaoh in this whole scenario of this family is actually King Tut. So, hey. yeah. yeah, King Tut is the son of Akhenaten and. Um, another woman who is not Nefertiti. Uh, Some people used to speculate that Nefertiti was King Tut's mother, but DNA testing revealed that she is not. Um, Was this
0: young lady one of his wives? This young
2: lady, King Tut's mother, was one of Akhenaten's wives and also one of Akhenaten's full sisters. Oh. Um, Yeah. But this was... No.
0: This was apparently
2: very (laughs) common in this time period, that they there was a lot of incest, and oh. um, not only did that's he, like full on incest. Oh, it gets worse. We How also is it worse than having. We also think that o- okay. Akhenaten ended up marrying one of his own daughters. Okay, <sighs> Um King Tut. So instead Tide, of a tree, it's just like it's a so stick. messed up. I tried. As you, <laughs> the listeners can't it's just see this. Straight. I tried, but it's like a mess to make a chart of this.
0: Right, and was that because they all felt like they were ordained by God, the blood of kings, and so they have to keep the bloodline pure. I think there was a sense of
2: they were all of royal blood, and so to keep the bloodline pure, you married, like, within the family. Um, But as you can imagine, there were a lot of diseases and deformities and biological issues that (laughs) resulted from this. And so,
1: Well, King Tut died when he was, like, a child, right?
2: Yes, and he was apparently severely... uh, his legs were very deformed mm-hmm. and so we think that he almost never walked on his own mm-hmm. and he sat a lot of the time and had apparently king tut had like over 100 elaborate walking sticks that he would use hey. um,
1: Dang! and he's coming to a science center near you
2: right um king tut also ended up marrying a half-sister, the daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. A little bit better. Right, and we think that Nefertiti was actually possibly Akhenaten's half-sibling, although that's still (laughs) being (laughs) attempting to be proven. Yeah, so the whole thing is really crazy. So
1: people are doing these DNA tests and they're like, what,
2: (laughs) what, what? Yeah, exactly. Everybody that they
1: test are like, wait, did I get the wrong sample? No, they are all related.
2: And the other part of why these, this like incest, incestual family tree um, has, at least DNA testing has illuminated some other questions is because in all of the depictions of Akhenaten and his family, Akhenaten himself looks fairly not deformed but just not like a, an extremely masculine portrayal he apparently had like wide hips and a bit of a pot belly and um, a very a tiny waist and kind of heavy set across the breast area and so there was for a long time some speculation about was Akhenaten actually a woman but then he did have six daughters with Nefertiti and so we know that he wasn't a woman per se but there's a lot of speculation about different biological conditions he might have had that led to a slightly deformed body and then also Akhenaten, Nefertiti and a lot of their children are depicted as having like this strangely elongated head and so there's a lot of debate about whether or not they did like head binding to create a shape of head <laughs> oh, yeah in order to set them apart from like the average person right
1: whether or not they were aliens Yes, that anybody. is a big
2: part of the alien theory is consistently being whoa, 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 depicted. <laughs> the whoa, alien I was, theory? I was joking. Yes, what alien crazy. theory? There's a whole theory. I thought
1: you guys were going to roll your eyes at me.
2: No, there's a whole theory I mean, I that, am, that just... Akhenaten was an alien. There's like documentaries, that? not me. A lot of scholars who are really into like ancient <laughs> Egypt was settled by aliens use yes. Akhenaten and his family as an example of strange body shape proving that they were aliens which i think is ridiculous but anyway (laughs) i'm glad i brought it up (laughs) you are not wrong kyle um so yeah so when philip glass was constructing this opera he was inspired by this novel historical theory that aknaughton had a kind of a parallel life to oedipus because there was also a lot of belief at one point that Akhenaten married his own mother sure but which is totally not out (laughs) of the realm of possibility but I think we don't have any concrete proof that that happened but anyway Philip Glass read this novel that really delved into this theory and he was kind of inspired by just the power of the storytelling even if the premise was not quite historically sound Um, and so he was inspired to write this opera that delved into the life of Akhenaten and initially he was actually planning it as a double opera where he was actually writing like two operas to happen simultaneously with the story of Akhenaten being set backstage like further from the audience and kind of higher up and then the story of Oedipus playing out lower oh, and closer Jesus. to
0: the audience. Oh my god. But then he Sounds quickly so I know,
2: but then he abandoned that because he felt like the story of Akhenaten was much more interesting mm-hmm. and was developing a lot more and the story of Oedipus was becoming less and less interesting to him and was distracting from the power of this Akhenaten story. So then he kind of stripped away the the Oedipal part and went <laughs> straight to uh, just hey, telling Phil? the story of Ocknaten. Good Phil, call Phil. To
1: to operas happening happening at the same time is just generally distracting that's i don't think there's any way around that
2: right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. i'm gonna Um, be
1: really embarrassed the next time i see philip glass that i'm I'm just referring to him so so
0: flippantly i'm sure he doesn't mind (laughs) so
2: so he was very inspired to write this and he actually went to egypt and actually everybody on the creative team went to egypt at different points in time to do kind of Primary research. And he was really inspired by a walk through one of the museums. I think it was the museum in Cairo, where we don't really have enough archaeological evidence to reconstruct the entire story and the entire timeline of Akhenaten. We don't know exactly every moment of his life, but we have these pockets of information that come to us from different artifacts. And so he decided to frame the whole opera on existing material or things we know about Akhenaten. And so he drew from primary sources for the actual text. And he, again, organized it in a sort of episodic structure. But because we know more than you might think we do about Akhenaten, he could actually construct a story of you first meet him at the funeral of Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III. You see Akhenaten Uh, coronated or crowned pharaoh in the opera that's act one scene two then you see Akhenaten kind of establish this new religion and bring forth this like worship of Aten there's a scene where there's this love duet between Akhenaten and Nefertiti and that's based on a lot of sources that show Nefertiti kind of elevated to basically equal to Akhenaten and kind of showing there's a a few carvings of them as a family where she's like sitting across from Akhenaten and they have their children on their lap and apparently it was a kind of like intimate portrait of family life that just doesn't exist before this time and has never really been replicated in the depiction of pharaohs after so archaeologists believe that there was this at least mutual affection but probably deep love between these two um and kind of happy family life and so you have this duet between the two of them should we
1: listen is, is there a recording should we listen yeah to there's
2: lots of recordings so um here's a little bit of the love duet between Akhenaten and Nefertiti and this is an act two scene two So as I said, every single scene in the opera, whatever text you hear is drawn from some kind of primary source. So the love duet was actually, uh, the text is a love poem that was found um, in a mummy of the Armana period. So we think that it's possible that Nefertiti wrote it mm-hmm. as a love poem. Dang. Um, yeah. There's also another scene called the hymn um, where there was this old ancient Egyptian text that they think Akhenaten himself wrote. um, But when they translated it into kind of modern English, they also found collaborators on the opera. They found that it very closely parallels um, Psalm 104 from the Bible. So there's kind of an interesting Judeo-Christian link there that possibly that psalm was inspired by this ancient Egyptian text. Um, That'd be
1: cool.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's also this artifact that exists called the Amarna letters where there were these clay or stone tablets that were exchanged between Akhenaten's rule in in Egypt and Syria at the time, which was like an Egyptian outpost. And basically Syria was being attacked from foreign invaders and they were calling on uh, the kind of center of the Egyptian power to send them aid. And apparently these pleas for help went unanswered Uh, but that led to kind of all it's kind of connected we think to Akhenaten's rule being attacked and basically him being overthrown and after he was overthrown then the previous pluralistic religions and the Amun Temple uh, was reinstated as the like official state religion so there's a scene Act 3, Scene 2 that shows you the attack and the fall of the the empire that Akhenaten built.
1: How long is this opera time-wise?
0: It is about three and a half hours. Okay.
1: That's pretty long. Is that including intermissions? Probably. Yeah, but three acts. That's, that's substantial.
2: All right, I got two more fun facts. Yeah. Oh, yes. To share. yes. This one I think Kyle's going to especially appreciate. So ah. Philip Glass really wanted to somehow reiterate in the opera that What you are witnessing as an audience member is a 20th century reimagining or understand attempt to understand the story of this ancient Egyptian culture and person. And so the epilogue of the opera, he actually took text from fromer's guide to egypt
1: cool and set it (laughs)
2: so that it's and what's supposed to be happening on stage is that all of the scenery is supposed to essentially be like the ruins that still exist in egypt today Mm
1: -hmm. i love that and then you have
2: the like a tour guide essentially guiding people around and it's supposed to remind you of just how 20th century i guess when this was written it was 20th century because it was the 80s and so the 20th century perspective of this ancient culture is kind of how the opera the opera ends.
1: That's cool. I like that reminder of like okay, hey, we're we're looking at all of this like as it happened, but it's actually through the lens of this time that's much later.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think it's just so crazy and incredible how much research they did in the genesis of this opera. The text itself, some of it is sung in ancient Egyptian. Some of it is sung in English. So the, the libretto is quite varied in the actual sounds that you're going to hear but they really tried to be as authentic as possible with the primary texts, if they could. And then the hymn, which is Psalm 104, that scene is the only scene where in the original score that was supposed to be sung in the language of the audience. And so when it premiered in Germany, it was sung in German. Mm -hmm. Um, When it premiered in the US, it was sung in English. And the idea is that it's supposed to be striking in how easily you can get into the mind of Akhenaten at that moment. Be present in that intimate act of worship. So that was the intent behind that. Yeah. But
1: I remember seeing an interview with Donald Palumbo, the chorus master at the Met, talking about preparing Satyagraha and how preparing the Sanskrit was like extremely hard for the chorus, of course, because they had never sung in that language before. Right. But I imagine it's really effective.
2: Yeah. So the other fun fact is that there's actually a lot of musical themes in this that Philip Glass uses as like reoccurring musical motifs. And there are four reoccurring musical motifs within the opera itself as kind of like an encapsulated Work, but then there's this one theme called the trilogy theme that he actually managed to weave into all three works in the portrait trilogy. Oh, cool! Nice. So, um, and he states it most obviously. I think the easiest place to hear it is in the epilogue of Akhenaten, and it's really neat because the way he does it is he states it in the epilogue, but as that trilogy theme is playing, you can actually hear the opening notes of Einstein on the Beach underneath.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. So
2: um, there's and there are many other ways that the trilogy theme is woven into the work um, and you can find it in all three, all three of those or sorry, all five of those knee plays in Einstein on the Beach, which are I think one of them is the moment with the one, two, mm-hmm. three, four. Right. All five of those sections in Iceman on the Beach feature this trilogy theme. In Satyagraha, um, it's stated twice, um, once when Gandhi embarks on his life's quest and once um, at the penultimate moment of political victory in the final scene. And then it's stated in at least three different places in Akhenaten, with the epilogue being the most obvious. So here's a little bit of that so you can hear the trilogy theme um, in the epilogue. And you can kind of hear, if you know Einstein on the beach, listen for, if you can hear Einstein subtly referenced underneath.
1: everybody that's listening to this and thinking oh I bet I'll never get to see Akhenaten
2: <laughs> that's not true you probably <laughs> it's not can true.
1: if you're listening to this within the first week of its release there's still time
0: there's still hopefully time. there's a
1: theater near you that shows met live in hd and you can see this wonderful Philip Glass opera.
0: Yeah. We recommend that you check it out. Because honestly, other than the opportunity of seeing it in a movie theater or if you live in New York grabbing yourself a ticket, I do not know when you will see this again. I know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: the production look, looks like it's going to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Anthony Roth Costanzo
2: is singing... Akhenaten, he is a countertenor. The choice of a countertenor was deliberate on Philip Glass's part because he wanted to immediately set apart Akhenaten, the character, as being separate and different from everything else around him. Alien. Uh, Like strange alien creature. I'm not saying countertenors are alien, but (laughs) he felt that the countertenor voice was an easy way to make... A mark of difference or otherness for the audience in Ocknot and the character, and there's going to be jugglers in the production. There's this huge juggling troupe that's so been much hired. Juggling. So
1: I know I saw some of the videos on the Mets, uh, probably their Instagram. I saw videos of the jugglers practicing. It looked really cool.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you gotta go so, check that out. so yeah, check it out if you get check the chance. it out and. If you really want to dig in more to this before you see it, if you can get your hands on a book called Music of Philip Glass, written by Philip Glass.
3: Nice. There's a
2: whole chapter on Akhenaten, and it was a really fascinating read, so I highly recommend it. It was published in 1987, which was kind of in the middle of the whole process of bringing the trilogy to Stuttgart so you kind of get his perspective right in the middle of creating all of this which is pretty neat
1: that's awesome well thanks again Naomi
2: you're welcome you You totally
1: nailed that you you have Akhenaten like in your brain
2: I've been deep in it the last few weeks so it's all very fresh but (laughs) anyhow check it out and
1: let us know what you think Let us know
2: what you think. You can find us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Mm -hmm. You can find out more information about us on operaafterdark.com, where you can also buy merch. And yeah, yeah, let us know what you think about this opera, about Philip Glass in general, and uh, check it out live in HD if you have the opportunity. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I'm Kyle.
0: I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth.
1: Bye. 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 Bye, Phil. Bye, Phil. Bye,
3: Phil.